Story makers. Hi, friend. <laughs> this is Angie Powers. And this is Elizabeth Stark. And this is Storymakers Show. This week, we got to sit down with Paul Lisicki, author of five books, including The Narrow Door. His new memoir named one of BuzzFeed's 27 most exciting new books of 2016. And so we got to talk about overnight success after yeah. 17 years in the business. The joy and promise of low expectations. <laughs> and staying true to your voice to let your audience find you. Paul will be reading at the AWP <laughs> April 2nd, 2016, 1.30 Grey Wolf Press reading with a bunch of other cool folks. So come check him out in L.A. You know who else you should check out in L.A.? <laughs> that would be me. I, Elizabeth, will be also at AWP floating around. So uh, come find me and I'll give you an autographed Storymakers bookmark. And don't forget to send your questions to questions at storymakers.com to get them answered. Anyway. And with that, on with the show. Paul, what are you working on now? Um, I started a new book last year called Stay, which is about my um, my initial time in Provincetown from 1991 till about 1994. And I just wanted to think about the town during the height of the AIDS epidemic and how it was changed, how it changed every, um, every aspect of town life. And I think, um, it was, it was a devastating time in part. People were dying, you know, in a a town of 3000, you know, the the town was averaging four funerals a week, but it was also a time of great, um, camaraderie and spirit and aliveness. And I just want to, I thought it was important to get a sound, uh, a sense of um, the spirit of that time down on the page. So I started it last summer and was lucky enough to go to Yaddo and I, I got a lot done. My hope is to get a pretty solid draft um, by this summer. Mm. So I'm really, you said I wanted to think about this time i wanted to get the spirit of this time on the page so is that the is that usually how you you start a project kind of wanting to explore something and using the 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 medium of the book and of writing to explore it i i guess so yeah i'm not so much interested in representation although representation is a part of that project but um yeah, it's, it's it's it seems really important to ask questions. What don't I understand? Why is it important to write about this time? Why haven't I ever forgotten that time? And why, in retrospect, does it feel more joyful than mm. I would have expected? You know, it was it was a terrible time. It was awful, mm. but um, there there was so much love among my friends and. And so much fun and play and laughter um, in, in the darkest moment. I hope that doesn't sound corny. No, it's, it sounds no. wonderful. I think it makes me think of looking for contrast, looking for story in places where there are these extreme contrasts, which yeah. is in the, narrow, in the narrow door as well. Right. Yeah, I guess that must be the, the, the place from which I write. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not interested wholeness. If, if wholeness actually exists, doesn't interest me um, dramatically or on any level. I, I just I, I, I'm interested in shade and nuance and compli- mm. complications. So that's where it all starts. Mm. Yeah. 
And Elizabeth, what are you working on? <laughs> I am in a revi- deep revision of a, of a novel and, um, and kind of trying to connect all the pieces and make it a, a fluid flowing whole. Could you tell us about the novel? <laughs> you know, I was actually just trying with, I have a little writing group that gets together every other Tuesday. And I was, I said, I just came from the San Francisco Writers Conference and everybody's pitching everything. And I said, I, I, I never have been good at that one sentence, you know, that you have oh, to be good horrible at. at it. Yeah. Well, you must be practicing a little bit, right? <laughs> I still don't think I do it that well. <laughs> I don't feel like I go on to sentence three or four and mm. five. And, and by the time you get to sentence three, people look a little pained and nervous. <laughs> it's about Joni Mitchell and also about Vincent Van Gogh. <laughs> yes, friendship, love, death. Um, yeah. So um, I guess if I had to, if I had to say a sentence about it um, that I'll later, you know, feel chagrined about, it would be something like um, a woman caught in the scandals about truth and. Uh, memoir and imagination um, who who is forced to face her own memory deficiencies in a kind of explosion of neuroscience and journalism. (laughs) (laughs) How about you, Ange? What are you working on? Um, I am continuing to wrestle a screenplay, which is proving to be a better opponent than I had anticipated. And um, yeah, so I think it's it's interesting all the things that I'm sort of figuring out. Why is the story I'm trying to tell important? That's one of the questions that I'm continuing to wrestle with. And um, so it was interesting that you you mentioned that. It, it, the thing that about that you that also struck me is it sounds very the Provincetown stories sound very reminiscent actually of like war stories that people talk about. Yeah. And and sitting that close to. Uh, how easily people can be lost. Right. Well, and how easily we can forget a time, the the character of a time, because, I mean, I think for most people now, it seems a bit like ancient history Mm -hmm. and it's, it's been simplified. It's a little extreme maybe. And, um, yeah, I've, I've talked to people who are even fairly close to me in age who have no idea of what that particular time was like so um yeah how much i mean it's interesting to think of of sort of the elegy the elegiac aspect of memoir because we actually angie was pointing out to me that early in the narrow door um you you have a passage that that you later repeat as as the elegy the eulogy rather right um yeah i i was just thinking about the fact that my sense of my sensibility, I think, grew up or was born out of um, those extreme times in the early, you know, the, the, during the 80s and 90s. That's, I was in my early 20s, mm. the 80s, and I think it's, it's probably fairly impossible for me not to be, not to be shaped by those stories of loss given when I came of age. So... Um, I, my sense is that anything I'd write would be filtered through that, um, that, that, that sense of loss. What's so fascinating about the narrow door is that it flips that narrative, though, as well, because you lose, you know, you, I'm always with my students saying the narrator, you know, but, <laughs> uh, 
as the speaker. It's so awkward. I, mean, I use the speaker when I'm sitting in front of bookstore audiences, and I think they, they just look bewildered. But. <laughs> that guy named Paul in your book, anyway, but, but you know, loses his... Fraud? <laughs> but, you know, loses his, his husband to divorce, you know, and loses his, his like, best girlfriend to, you know, death, which is the kind of reverse of the whole sort of story we saw again and again and again. Right, right. In that time. Yeah. Um, I think I needed to tell more than one story at once in order Mm -hmm. to complicate that narrative. I mean, that the narrative is really powerful to me. But, you know, the the narrative has borders around it. And, um, the template is already fixed in us. So mm. I think I wanted to sort of find a way to play with the templates that in a way that found tr- that that felt true to me. I was I was actually curious sort of about process because you are bouncing around in time so much in right. that book. And so thinking about you know, as you write, sometimes there's an intuitive side, sometimes there's an analytical side. Right. I'm just sort of curious about your process when you're thinking, okay, I'm going to break up these stories. How much was intuitive? How much was a plot on your part? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. A lot of it was intuitive. Um, I had just finished a draft of another book um, as I started this one. So there wasn't ter- terrific or tremendous pressure on this one. I, I simply wanted to keep Denise around in the world a little while longer. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought maybe at some point this would be a book, but I started working on it maybe six weeks after her death, and it was just a way to keep her mm-hmm. her gestures in front of me, her, you know, her laughter, the way she held the coffee cup, you know, the way she stomped across the room, um, and all of that felt it just felt it, it felt important to me to have that around. It also made me sick. I couldn't stand it. So after I a, after I worked on a scene centered around her gestures, I'd step away and and write about volcanoes, for instance, right. because I had to confront the fact that she was gone and sick and and, and not with me. So I just I, I, it made me sick. So mm-hmm. it started to go back and forth between those two poles. And I wasn't really sure if it was working at first, but I knew that there were other there were other structures out there that had managed to um to be successful and engaging. I mean, there was um Nick Flynn's The Ticking is the Bomb, which I've taught a lot, Maggie Nelson's Bluettes, um, Steve Elliott's Adder- the Adderall Diaries, Eulabis's the the pain scale, that essay. So, you know, I wasn't building something completely out of nowhere. There, there were some distant models that I had faith in that I could um, not look at directly, but just think about as possibilities, or signposts, or touchstones. You know, but it, it, I'm always interested. For me, when I went through my MFA program. We didn't learn anything about revision. So I'm constantly interested in how people approach that. And when you're using a non-traditional model, how do you decide, yep, that's it. That's that's 
that 10, that, you know, 2010 slice belongs right up against that 2008. Right. And that's unambiguous to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, each section is organized around an image. And it, mm-hmm. one image is meant to talk to the next image, to the next image. So essentially it's organized around, uh, organized like a book of poems. Mm-hmm. Um, about two years into the editing process, Fiona McRae, after I turned in some edits to her, said, well, and I'd, I had made the mistake of saying, I think you're really going to like what you see here. And that's <laughs> like the worst thing to do to any editor. I thought I'd followed all of her instructions. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, she I got the dire call. And um, essentially, she asked me to write a linear version of the book without using that word because she knew I'd be put off because all of my, I think all of my books sort of struggle against linearity or defy it. I, the shape is always there in my mind, but it's something that I'm resisting. And, you know, I think for for many years that probably kept me in the position of being a cult artist, you know, or a cult writer because, you know, that just, I, I was breaking some cardinal rule. So in any case, um, I willingly went along with Fiona's advice. I tried to have an open mind. I spent about six or seven months writing a linear version of the book. Mm-hmm. And um, I was pretty acutely aware of what wasn't on the page, that the tangential stuff could not be on the page. It was losing all of the dynamic form of the collage. But I thought, well, okay, so the focus is on the humans here, and maybe that's maybe that's enough. But I was in Provincetown at a coffee shop over winter break, and writing and writing and being a good, dogged boy. And I felt some heat at the back of my neck. There was no one else in the coffee shop, and I practically said aloud, no, 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 no. And I felt... I just felt lifted by that no. And I thought, okay, what am I going to do now? And I thought, okay, I have to write, I have to write Fiona a letter convincing her that the, the book needs to be in its original structure. And I waited a couple of weeks and wrote the letter, sent it. It's about, the letter's about two pages, single spaced. Mm. And, um, Right away, she said, you're right, of course. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I was, you know, I, I don't think any of that time was wasted. I felt like I got the chance to test what was there, like, mm-hmm. fully, on every level. And, you know, once you know, once we went back to the original structure, I just made sure that each sentence was as finely tuned as it could be within Mm-hmm. Did you did you use the writing from the linear draft and push it around? Um, I really didn't. Like, interestingly, I was just asked to contribute something to a literary magazine's um, friendship issue. And um, so I've gone back to that old draft to extract something. So my plan this weekend mm-hmm. is to get, you know, take a 10-page section of it. Because I think just for archive... I, archival purposes it would be interesting to have a section of it out there i mean yeah um, yeah 
it's yeah, it's it's not bad. It's all in past tense. It's like a different book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that the past tense sort of changes my relationship to the material. The the speaker's relationship. <laughs> yes. <laughs> on, on in in the yeah. narrow door on page sixty one, you talk about Denise's process of writing, uh, making the book linear. You have yeah. to have it sex, right? She makes the book linear. Over the next few months, she writes a simpler, more streamlined version of the book she'd wanted to write. A book she probably loves a little less, though she doesn't have it in her to say it to herself like that. But maybe that's a better place to write from, loving a little less. The right. new book is a replacement for the dream book. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder how much that story influenced hmm. the players <laughs> behind this story. I don't know. We've never we've not discussed that, but mm. it's it's interesting, you know. And and maybe that story influenced me too because I just thought that there was a, a lesson inherent in it, and I knew Denise was never happy with her second book. Mm. It's painful to watch that because mm. I knew how much that book meant to her. I mean, that so much faith went into that work, and. She was so excited about expanding her own borders and self as an artist. And um, yeah, you know, to be met with indifference and even worse than the difference, mm-hmm. indifference refusal. I mean, I think it I think it crushed her and honestly I'm not sure she ever recovered from that. Mm-hmm. She has a wonderfully um a wonderful third novel that's unpublished. Um that that is like fully present and alive, but um, I, mean, I wonder. I, I I still think that the discouragement um, that came with the second novel shaped her shaped her story. Mm-hmm. You know, story like life story. It's funny because there's a book called The Door. That you know, out, that is um, was one of the ten best books of last year. A novel by this Hungarian author Magda Szabó. Wow, I'm embarrassed that I don't know it. Oh yeah, and uh, <laughs> it's it's um, and it's but anyway, it was published I think originally in 1987 um, oh. in Hungary, but I think here too, and and then. Um, and then it went out of print. It didn't really get a lot of attention, I understand. And then it came, it was reprinted by the New York Times or the New York Review of Books Classics oh, series. Yeah. And, um, and, it, and it's, you know, and it was picked as one of the 10 best in the you know, New York Times Book Review and all of that. So it's got a, gotten a lot more attention and she's no longer alive. Yeah. Um, so it just, I don't know, it resonated somehow. Right. Well, I have to check that book out. It's inter- it's interesting. It's about a writer. <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> Who knows what we metabolize? You yeah. know, we have heard about that book. Who knows? Yeah. Right, right. Maybe, but I think it had really disappeared. So I did <laughs> to some extent. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was intrigued. Um, there were a number of things that really pulled me in. There certainly it was interesting because it felt like there were times when you had very concise almost plain language and then some places where you really kind of dug in into sort of a more lyrical kind right. of language um which I loved both sides of um and I I really enjoyed seeing like trying to trying to really think through okay the volcanoes and and the oil spills and you know the man-made kind of uh natural disasters and um 
just sort of that where that located that backdrop against everything and um I'm just really sort of interested there's a permission that you you know I know you had to fight for this once your agent had asked for linearity but but there's a permission in in the process of of your initial outlay uh that you were able to give yourself um and I think sometimes a lot of people are almost afraid to give themselves that kind of expansiveness yeah and can you talk about that Oh, sure. I mean, I'm not sure I would have given myself that permission if it had been my first book. I mean, I think my first, my very first novel, which has never been published, the one that came before Lawn Boy, um, is so doggedly linear. I think there are parts that feel animated, but by and large, there's so much energy put into maintaining the connective tissue. And um, I mean, for me, I'd already published three books had already been published um a fourth was finished um i suspected it was going to find a home i think by that by the point that i started the narrow door i had lost any um hope or interest in the fact that i would write a a a book that would sell lots of copies so i you know i knew i i had found a world within the world of indie presses and small presses and had a band of readers who appreciated my work. And it was like liberating to be there, not to worry about money or sales or accessibility. And, um, but that, you know, I, I sort of had to earn that place for myself and, you know, feel lots of disappointment and negotiation myself. So, um, you know, that coupled with the fact that I was probably more devastated than I knew after Denise had died. My mother had died a few months or actually like six weeks before Denise had died. Oh, my God. Um, so both of those deaths had, had pretty much fused in me psychically. So, you know, I, I didn't I did not care about pleasing anyone. Right. You know, pleasing. That that's that might sound. You know what I'm I'm saying. Yes. I mean, I, uh, it, I I felt a t- I, I wanted or felt a need to be attuned to the heart of the work before anything else involved. Mm-hmm. You know, the book industry. Yeah. And you know, if if ten people were going to read this book, or twenty, or one hundred, fine. You know, it just it, it would it would just be another another book in my accumulation. That, that's, right. So that's, looking at your body of work rather right, than the individual, right from that place. I mean, I think this is the scary thing about being feeling like an overnight success after seventeen years of publishing is that all the, you, know, you, you learn you learn to pay attention to the work and writing. You, you get used to writing out outside the beam of the radar and all of a sudden um there's a, approval and interest and it's it's an, it just it's odd after it's odd to be fed a certain kind of food when you've you know when you haven't eaten that food for a long long time mm-hmm. and i'm not even sure i like the taste of it. i don't want people to care about my work but i have no real i have suspicion or I'm, I'm suspicious about 
whatever. I mean, literary fame is not the same as Lady Gaga fame. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. But um, I think outside expectation can shape work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, not, and, you know, as we know, lots of people are involved in the shaping of it of a book. So, you know, you sell your book for a certain amount of dollars. It's not only about yourself, it's, it's involving your agent or editor, et cetera, et cetera. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually had another question sort of piggybacking on that, which was that, um, you know, I've heard a lot of memoirists talk about needing to take time between the events they're writing about and being able to really have some insights uh, they have to process it six weeks after Denise and 12 weeks after your mother, essentially. Like, yeah. that's not a lot of time. And yeah. and in the and, and kind of in the still in the in the maybe the I believe if I haven't gotten this backwards in the early stages of the narrative with with M. <laughs> who, well, I'll get to that in a minute. But right. Like um, so you're you're writing this this first part of the story while this other part is still unfolding that's going to be part of the book. Yeah, the the M sections were written probably days after they happened, (sighs) which is bizarre because I just never would have expected that material into the book, but I had had two-thirds of the book done, and I think the book was just helping me to walk onward in the world and so it was giving me a kind of perspective that I wouldn't have had if I didn't have the device of writing if I didn't have sentences and paragraphs to shape my experience um it's that the question of perspective is so interesting because I mean you know so so this book was written closer in time to the incidents than one would say was the convention, but maybe, you know, is three hours necessarily less significant or more significant than three years? You know, like, Mm. you know, time is, is, is an arbitrary device, barometer. Yeah, I mean... Um, Could you tell I mean, the difference in writing about, you know, 1987 or, you know, or writing about yesterday? I mean, did it feel different in ter- maybe in terms of how much you had to invent or imagine or anything? What, what would you say? Um, not really. Hmm. I mean, it, to many readers that the sections in the 80s feel immediate, but... There's so much of that period that I don't remember. And if, I mean, I think if you look at, if, if you added up the 1980 sections, they're probably, my guess is that they're probably about a half dozen. I might, be, I might be wrong about that, but that's pretty much what I remember. I mean, memory just held on to what I think of as iconic moments and mm-hmm. that they stand in for... My time with Denise. There's, mm-hmm. there's so much I don't know. I have the sad things. I have so few pictures. Mm-hmm. I think there's just one picture of us together that was taken fairly late um, in our friendship, not long before she died. Because so I think we were so inside the friendship that there was no real need to document it. 
and also who took pictures before. <laughs> it's like you've just given your age away. <laughs> we weren't we weren't photographing ourselves all the time and posting it with our breakfast. Yeah. But you know, I don't know why the move that makes me think of the movie Home for the Holidays with Holly Hunter. Um, it's just wonderful, and it really is about the things we don't have pictures of, right? Mm-hmm. Right, you know, yeah, I guess so. I felt some need to make pictures of the little I had left, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, people have asked me about the anxiety of representation, and uh, I understand that intellectually and theoretically, but if I didn't make the, if I didn't have those scenes to build, I think, um, I, I, I'd miss Denise even more. Mm. Yeah. Mm. There's a wonderful moment where M says, you know, you, you're in the middle of this very dramatic scene. And then he says, you can write about this. Right. Right. Which is just, I love that. So, and I, and I noticed I that your reviewers. That now I've not, I've not asked him. If, if... But your, your reviewers, uh, like several of your reviewers have just outed him as, yeah. and I don't think it's a huge secret, um, but, and well, also it's, the yeah, famous writer. Public. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but so, so can you talk a little bit about the decisions you, one makes around, protecting people or what you keep out of something and it's also funny because you 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 mentioned famous writer (laughs) and then go on to give us very clear details about how to find who famous writer is if you want to play that game Um, though i um, it's that's meant to be playful i hope and not and not manipulative or or creepy because um i mean i think once you put once i put John Irving's name on the page, it really changes. Mm-hmm. It, it changes the, it would change the dynamic hugely. Similarly, if I put Mark's name on the page, you know, the reader is reading about Mark the poet as well as thinking about Mark's persona. So um, it, I don't know why I'm like I'm, I'm I'm thinking too much, but it's it's just he becomes my, my lover if like through the initial if mm-hmm. that makes sense. So it's not it, I, I I wish I'd said more about or anticipated um, the response that I was hiding or protecting him because all you need to do is, is Google <laughs> my name. I mean. Wikipedia or Google still thinks he's my spouse. He, yeah. They refuse to change it. Um, Someone's having feelings somewhere. That's all. Yeah, which is fine. They're like, I'm perfectly but, fine with being known as as Mark's spouse, even though he's married to someone else. But um, you know, I I really I really enjoyed that because one, you know, Elizabeth and I had a conversation, and I was like, look, this is transmedia narrative but in an old-fashioned kind of way in that you're giving us clues and I did go because I didn't know who it was so I was like wait a minute who is this and then I looked up the time (laughs) cover and I was like it's John Irving and it was and it actually was sort of fun and and playful and it was um I I just thought it was a kind of an interesting way to get reader interaction so even if you weren't necessarily planning that people can get drawn into little curiosities I mean, there are a number of writers' names throughout the book, and I want I wanted them to be placed just so that I didn't want it to feel like name dropping or mm-hmm. want to. I I didn't want 
the reader to feel distant from this, um, you know, quote unquote, exclusive world. I wanted to position the reader right inside it along with me. So... I think that the use of famous writer, I loved it. I loved not knowing who it was. And I think it did give me as a reader the space to kind of be closer to you guys rather than these images I might have of people I don't know at all. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cool. That's, that's yeah. nice to hear. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you a couple of kind of uh, logistical questions about the, the um well, a couple of kind of practical questions. A lot of our listeners are student writers or, you know, up, up and coming. And right. um, you are one, you're, you're well published um, in, in kind of uh, in literary journals and things like that. So I wanted to, wondered if you would talk about the process of placing work in, in those markets. Sure. Um, I mean, I used to be a dogged submitter when I started um, and I would submit multiple, multiply when you weren't supposed to do that. And um, when something was taken, I would simply, you know, write to the other journals and say, I'd like to withdraw my submission. I don't think that that's an issue anymore because submittable and other venues have encouraged or enabled mm-hmm. that kind of multiple submission thing. Um, that's probably all boring. I, no, I think uh, it's really helpful to, to people who are trying to do it. You know, it's it's very hard to get those habits going, I think. Right. Yeah, I, yeah. you know, when I started, uh, as soon as I got a rejection, um, I mean, I, I was sending the work out constantly and had, I wouldn't say a thick skin, but um, I had... I had such low expectations. I mean, I certainly wanted to be in, say, Black Warrior Review. Um, but, you know, I didn't grow up in the world of writing. I mean, it, it felt like this mysterious arrival to end up there in my undergraduate years. It felt like such a gift after years of, of being a musician. Um, so... I mean, I loved being a musician, but it, you know, when I ended up in in a creative writing workshop, my expectations, as I say, my expectations were low. So it, if anyone smiled at me or had a kind word to say, that was enough because I, I just didn't think I naturally had those tools. Mm. Um, but um, I haven't been so good about sending work out in the last several years. I, I mean, the lucky thing about being a, about staying around as a writer is that people start to ask you to submit work, and it's probably an irritating thing to hear to younger writers. But soon enough, you know, younger writers will get asked to submit work, and um, yeah, it's 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 kind of rare for me to submit anything now. But if someone invites me, um, invites me to submit work, I, I do it right away. No matter no matter what the level the magazine is, mm-hmm. so it's always an honor. Mm-hmm. And I I like the idea of publishing, you know, in magazines that have wide readerships and magazines that might be read online by six people. I shouldn't be, I think online magazines have a a wider readership. Finally, this is the thing that we don't really talk about. You can get published in a really prestigious magazine that only has, that's only available in print. 
and you know no one ever sees it it's not indexed anywhere so sometimes i think it's it's preferable to be published online mm. it's passed around um yeah 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 what do you think is the most sustaining advice that you kind of continue to come back to when you sit down with the with the blank page oh that's a good question i mean sustaining advice around writing itself or around publishing or both or staying or, in the chair yeah yeah and <laughs> i guess all of it yeah yeah I, you know i think one's um, methods can change over the course of the years when i first started i would stay in the chair um and did what I could to follow my dad's work ethic. I mean, I first started writing when I was still living with my parents. So I would go down into the basement and sort of figuratively chain myself to his my dad's drafting table and and sit there whether I was producing anything or not. And you know, I think over the course of the years, I don't my own work habits have become much more flexible and sometimes I do my best writing 15 minutes before I have to be in a podcast (laughs) standing in line to go on a plane when I'm not planning for it and usually that work isn't finished but um, when I'm working and not putting pressure on it's usually at its most inspired for me so I, I write in all sorts of situations I like writing on buses and on trains, on planes. Um, once I wrote a piece that's actually, I think, in where is it? Oh, it's in conjunctions. I wrote it while walking down the beach in North Carolina. I knew there was an inlet about a mile ahead, and I had. I often write on my phone too. Wow. Uh, you know, into the the notebook app on the iPhone. And so I started walking down the beach and I would thumb a sentence or two in and then walk a little further, then stop and thumb in another sentence. So it's a piece of about a page and a half, but it was written in the span of walking. So, yeah, I like the idea of using, like, what felt exciting about that was the ability to use my body as I walked. Mm-hmm. That's the worst thing about being a writer, sitting on, who wants to sit on his butt all the time, you know? It's just not, painters and actors can just have access to breathing and and movement and space. And I think, you know, I think it's important to try to find, I wouldn't tell everyone to write while walking all the time, but I think it's okay to, it's okay to break it up. You don't have, I mean, discipline, Discipline can take many forms. I don't. I don't think I'm necessarily encouraging, you know, arbitrary. I don't want to tell you to be lax about your work if you're a young writer or a newer writer. But um, I kind of work all the time. Mm. But um, it's not on the schedule that I used to work. I, I, I have this piece to write this weekend. I'm hoping to have tomorrow afternoon and Saturday and Sunday to work on it. And on Saturday and Sunday, I'll probably work, I don't know, six or seven or eight or nine hours each. But, you know, that happens a few times a month at most these days. Yeah. 
Uh, we have a segment called Steal This, and it's based on the idea from T.S. Eliot that, um, what is it, amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. And so what is something that you've encountered in your world that you're like, yeah, I'd like some of that? Oh, I just read What Belongs to You, Garth Greenwell's novel. Mm -hmm. um, that just came out last month. We actually shared a pub date. And I uh, love... I love the the way that Garth um, doesn't hurry through a moment in time. I love the meticulousness of perception and attention that he pays to, to the dramatic moment. Mm. Um, I never feel him rushing. I'm always aware of each moment being inhabited with with feeling and intelligence. I mean, I feel like as a writer, I'm I'm always changing. No, maybe others don't see this, but my sense is that I'm always changing time signature. I'm really interested in changing keys and you know dropping notes from particular measures, and that's probably you know to me like a good thing and a bad thing, but. Um, I, I, I just I love Garth's sense of breathing on the page. I think I think it's brilliant and gorgeous, and I think we can all learn from from his syntax. Mm. I haven't read the book yet, but I actually was just reading the, sure. the review that James Wood wrote in the New Yorker, and, and this it's is better than that review. Well, but this is one of his rare positive reviews, right? That that the review was what. <laughs> It's even better than, than <laughs> the, right. So <laughs> one can only imagine. Um, but but one of the things that struck me um, was that it, it it sounded like both both of these books that James Wood talks about. Um, have you read the other one? It was um, Daryl Pickney's uh, Black Deutschland. No, I haven't read that, and I should. I'm curious about it. So, but it have just. You? No, I haven't read either of these, but um, but but the the kind of the way they were written up, where they it seemed like they were very much, um, well, one like not not enthralled to kind of scene, and and actually, I mean, linearity is something that I often do encourage my students toward, is because because sometimes there's something about the build of not necessarily the the sequence without leaps. I think leaps are important, but sometimes, right. you know, it can be uh sometimes it can be undone with there's anyway. There's a whole that's a whole other conversation, but, but in, I I know what you're I know exactly what you're saying. <laughs> so, and I love the way we talked about it. I think the things you had to say about it are, are so important um as well. But anyway, so so there's this um this idea that that I, as I was reading this this review that, that of kind of the the ways that these books are written that are not um, sort of replicating what we see in in the sort of golden age of television writing and and film, but they're and 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 then I just finished reading Outline by um, Cusk, is her Rachel Cusk, which uh -huh. is very like uh, no, oh, well, there's some dialogue, but it's a lot of reported dialogue. And then this book, The Door, that I'm reading, not to be mistaken with the Narrow Door, uh, which is sort of also has a sense of storytelling. And so I'm kind of curious about the ways that books are maybe some books are, are imitating or are kind of leaning into these these conventions of visual storytelling that we're all so versed in now and others are really pushing towards more like oral storytelling or or um telling you know telling right. 
I think um, Garth's book um, is based in, in I mean, he started out as a poet. Mm-hmm. And I think all of that, that narration, that, that meditation is, is really meant to evoke interiority first. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more interested in the inner life than it is in exchange, you know, in a kind of exterior sense of exchange. So, um, I mean, I think the, the, the kind of writer who, or reader who likes lots of dialogue, who might say be a fan of, you know, Laurie Moore's work, I mean, her dialogue is always so wonderfully snappy, might not, um, you know, might not be drawn to that kind of interior book. But um, I think it's interesting that people or that, that readers are, that, that readers are willing to go there right now because it feels pretty far from the landscape of TV and film. And maybe books have been mimicking TV and film for a while, and we're just thinking about what TV and film can't do. And, and mm-hmm. one thing that those genres don't do well is interiority. I mean, they sort of they can they can teach you to infer it, and so, you know sometimes voiceovers suggest it, and sometimes jump cuts and images suggest it. But um, yeah, I think when you're reading Garth, you're way down inside the character's consciousness and soul. Yeah. But, you know, one wouldn't want every book to be in that place. I mean, <laughs> it just, but it's, it's great. I love being there. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it has, you know, it's Roots and Wolf and people like that. Yeah. As in Virginia. I mean, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's so easy to do it poorly. <laughs> um, and I am so inclined to interiority that I push hard uh-huh. myself hard to do exteriority and to do it through images and inference and juxtaposition. So anyway, I'm just intrigued by that whole conversation. It's not quite a steal this as much as a think about this note to self. Yeah, so a steal this is like really about a particular passage. Did I, did I oh, miss no. no, no, you did it perfectly. Yeah, no, it's, it's that <laughs> you I don't passed. Know if you I passed. I don't know if I want to steal or reject it. That's all. Yeah. It's, just, it's just nine. Yeah, just think yeah. about it. I mean, other books I've loved recently. I loved Mary Gateskill's The Mayor. I think that's been underappreciated. Um, it was a big flurry and burst of attention when it came out, but that, that book's good. It sounds amazing. I, we haven't read that yet either, but... Uh, I know we've been lazing around, haven't we? What have we been doing with our free time? How about you, Angie? So much free time we all have. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And what about you for Steal This? You know, um, it was sort of interesting listening to the conversations. I was put in mind of a book that I read um, a long time ago in my MFA program where the, and I won't mention the title of the book, but my professor was like, yeah, I think this author was really exploring boredom. And it was like a 400-page book with no paragraphs and no scene. And, you know, just... And we were like, what? But I think... um, I think that, like, I get very caught up in in wanting to kind of... What I consider mastering the basics uh, without taking the risks of kind of exploring some of the other things. So, you know, as we were talking earlier, you know, you were talking about, like... um, you put in your time, you did linearity and you, you, you get it. And yet that's not who you are and that's not what you're, 
doing at this point, but you kind of had to earn the right through your publications and stuff to, to make more, um, take more challenges. And I haven't technically earned the right yet, but I think I'm just going to throw in something really random in my screenplay because that makes me happier. Like I realized like doing that makes me happier. So there you go. That's my thing. I don't know who I'm stealing that from, but Paul. I, yeah. <laughs> well, he's not random, though. That was my, mm, yeah. <laughs> what I, I learned to do is just to, to to try to pay attention to how my mind works. So mm. it's it, it it's just about being attuned to my own brain waves. And, and being friends with them. I mean, talk about a, a book of friendship. There's, you know, your friends friendship. Brainwaves. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe the, the ultimately the form of this book, you know, could not have happened without you really being friends with your own way of, I mean, that sounds very California somehow, but. Well, I'm totally for California. Part <laughs> of the East Coast. <laughs> Come visit us. I am. Um, Next week, actually. Oh, oh wow! Well, I'm not, I'm not. I don't know if I'm, I'm not visiting your house. Right. Oh, well, you could. I'm going, be, <laughs> I'm going to be in San Francisco. Not this weekend, but next weekend. Oh, what are the I dates on say, that? I think we should say the dates because yeah. um, we we are a little bit off. I mean, you, the podcast comes out a little bit later. But okay. if you want to say where where you'll be, um, we'll try to. Oh, I'm so. doing that, a, a an event at Booksmith called. It's called Book Swap, mm-hmm. and it must be. It's. Friday, a week from this Friday. So um, whatever that date is. I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I'll try to also get it out there on Facebook in case it, um, it happens to come before the podcast. Yeah, that's oh, that's fine. Yeah. It was, yeah, thank you so much for yeah. taking the time to... Oh, thank you. This is yeah. so much fun. I don't want to stop. I know. <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a pleasure. 